This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Helen Phillips, author of The Need. I've always been intrigued by different possible identities. I, I remember as a child just wondering about the version of Helen who didn't lose her hair or the version of Helen who made some other even minuscule choice, like to have one kind of sandwich rather than another. We'll hear more from Helen in just a minute. First, I want to tell you a little bit about this podcast. I've been reading a book a week for the last six-plus years with the goal of offering insight into craft, theme, and the literary life. Each conversation featured on the show is meant to offer questions and answers you may not hear elsewhere, with some of the best writers of our time. When I talk with an author about the concerns of their work and the craft they use to employ their greater vision, it is a striving toward empathy, toward a two-way dialogue that is often missing in our current society about art and politics, social issues, family relations, and the human struggle. It is an absolute passion and pleasure for me to deliver this content to you every Monday without fail. If you enjoy these discussions, if they further your own writing and reading, make you think more deeply about something you hadn't considered before, if they offer you a glimpse into how an idea turns into images and sentences and novels or poems or essays, please consider giving back to First Draft by becoming a part of the First Draft community on Patreon, a website where you can support the artistic endeavors of people like me. The website to support First Draft is patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your donation and kind giving makes a big difference in my life as a podcaster, reading and interviewing and editing for this show. By becoming a part of the First Draft Giving community, there are extras from the show I will send you each month as a thank you for your patronage, including cuts that didn't make the final show with the authors, writing tips, books, and more. Donation tiers start at just $6 a month. So take a minute to go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and please contribute to what we are creating together. I couldn't do it without you. And also please rate the show wherever you download your podcasts and tell all your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Helen Phillips, author of five books, including the short story collections, and yet they were happy and some possible solutions, as well as the novels, The Beautiful Bureaucrat and The Need. Helen Phillips is a graduate of Yale and the Brooklyn College MFA program, where she is now an associate professor. Her novel, The Need, is characterized as part thriller, part speculative fiction, and part psychological drama. The Need tells the story of Molly, a paleobotanist and mother of two young children named Ben and Viv. When her husband is out of town, an intruder breaks into her home, and Molly must face this intruder head-on. Molly is often destabilized, not just by the intruder, but by motherhood itself and the demands of her job. The reader closely follows Molly as she navigates the uncertain territory of the world she inhabits. We began the discussion talking about how growing up in Colorado influenced Helen Phillips' work. The need could be set almost anywhere, and that was very intentional, that it would be 
a setting that anyone could infuse their own life into. I wanted there to be that space for the reader in a sense, but I do picture it in my own mind as being a Western city. So there's that aspect of it. And the fact that there is this obsession with the earth, with digging, penetrating the earth and trying to understand the history of the world. But I feel like my childhood in Colorado has influenced me, my writing so profoundly in part because I grew up in a place where you could leave your home and walk for two hours and not see any other people. So there was a really deep solitude in that and walking in the woods was how I spent a lot of my time as a child. And now I live in New York City, so it's very, very different. But I feel like I carry within me that a certain nostalgia for that, a certain um, peace from that. And I guess I, I bear within me uh, a standard for what the world can be like at its most sort of serene. And I think that makes me particularly attuned to certain anxieties about climate change, which appears not so much in the need, but in a lot of my other writing and, and a certain valuing of the land that comes from my childhood that makes me often interested in exploring dystopian scenarios where people don't have as much access to nature. You know, I've read about your childhood and, and some of the really challenging issues in your family that were also heartbreaking. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your family dynamic. The need is dedicated to my older sister, Catherine, who died in 2012. The, and she actually died just a few weeks after my daughter was born. Uh, Catherine had the rare neurological disorder, Rett syndrome. So she she was born apparently healthy, but then at about one year of age, she started to lose the ability to walk and to talk, and um, her pro- progress started to slip away. And then my parents didn't know what her condition was because it wasn't widely recognized in medical literature until she was seven years old. So for the first seven years of her life and throughout my early childhood years, they were struggling with this confusion and grief about what um, was going on with my sister. And and then once they did find out, um, I mean, it's helpful to have a diagnosis, but in a way it doesn't change that much in terms of the day-to-day reality. It must have been challenging, too, for you to know, like, how much attention you needed from your parents when this was going on. Like, I could imagine that your imagination must have really been a companion for you. I've always, from the age of six, I've wanted to be a writer. I always knew that there was something that was deeply exciting for me and also sort of strangely soothing, even though my writing is a place where I express my darkness, there's something soothing or maybe not soothing, that's the wrong word, but a cathartic thing for me. And, and so all throughout my childhood, I wrote and wrote. And when I was, um, when I was 11 years old, I lost all of my hair due to the autoimmune condition alopecia. And that was also a hard loss in my childhood, although because I had the perspective of my sister, to not have hair didn't seem like that big of a deal relative to what my sister struggled with. But when I was 13 years old, I decided that I, I actually made a New Year's resolution to write a poem a day. 
And in those poems, I would write a lot about the fact that I didn't have hair or what it felt like to be bald or trying to find power in that. And I kept that New Year's resolution until I was 21 years old. So it's piles and piles of poetry that I never want anyone to read again, including myself. But that um, daily writing practice was very powerful for me, even at that age. It seems to me that it's such a brave choice to face your alopecia head on. You know, you could wear a wig, you could pencil in eyebrows. Yeah, well, so I did actually, when I first lost my hair, I wore wigs for many years. And then when I went to college, I wore scarves and then I wore scarves for many years. And I actually didn't fully go bald around the world until I was 29 years old. And it was the same week that my first book came out, And Yet They Were Happy, which is a collection of microfiction stories. That same week that the book was published, I had this sudden epiphany. If I'm revealing myself so much in my writing, why am I still covering up my head? I'm already so exposed that the physical covering of my head just seemed like a silly thing to me suddenly. And so I took off my scarf and I have never worn a scarf again. And it's been really wonderful. I think all those years of covering myself, I felt scared of what the world's response would be. I felt self-conscious. And well, the thing is, I live in New York, so a bald woman is never going to shock anyone that much. There, there are so many different ways of looking here. And that's something that I really love about New York. So all the things that I had feared about people's responses um, did not come to pass. So it might sort of reference back to this idea of, of not covering yourself up. The idea of covering yourself up is kind of like almost like you have two selves. And mm-hmm. that is, you know, something that is thematically at the at the heart of your book is, you know, motherhood and, and who you are and wanting to be two places at once. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the genesis of the need. I mean, yes, I've always been intrigued by different possible identities. I, I remember as a child just wondering about the version of Helen who didn't lose her hair or the version of Helen who made some other even minuscule choice, like to have one kind of sandwich rather than another. And the idea that each choice you made or each thing that happens to you, there are always other branching paths of choices you could make or things that could happen to you. So I've always lived with that kind of curiosity or or wondering about um, the particular path that one's life takes. But in terms of the real genesis for the need, um, It is quite personal. As I mentioned, uh, the book is dedicated to my sister. And the same summer that my own daughter was born, my firstborn child, I lost my sister. And so right as I was falling in love with my daughter and just experiencing all of that intensity and love and ecstasy and responsibility, my own parents were losing their firstborn child. And I was watching them go through that and I was losing my sister. And so just this this feeling of bearing two things at once, bearing life, new life and new possibility, and then bearing the loss of life and the loss of this person who's always been with you. It's just, people have to do this all the time, deal with birth and death simultaneously, but it was just a really acute time. And I knew that I had to write a book that somehow got at that complexity. So when the book opens, we meet Molly, and her husband David is a musician, and he's away. Molly is a paleobotanist, and she is working on 
this sort of seam of earth that has been has shown some artifacts that are both seem to be very old and also some mysterious modern things, Coke bottles and little monkey things and a Bible, which we can get to mm-hmm. talking about. And she is alone with her two kids. She has Viv, who's four, and Ben, who's a baby. And she's alone with them in the evening and she hears um, an intruder. And the thing, one of the things that really grounded me in the beginning to who Molly is, and I'm going to ask you to talk about it, is she, very early on, it's in page five, and you're getting the sense of how in some ways becoming a mother has dislocated her and a little bit in the world in, in terms of, you know, her center now is taking care of these kids, but also this fear of, of taking care of them and all the things that motherhood could do to her. And you just have one line um, where she's talking about what she feels in, in, in her house. And it says the conviction that the rumble underfoot was due to an earthquake rather than a garbage truck. And mm-hmm. to me, that line as I started reading, I was like, okay, I get it. I get where she's coming from. It's like the the fears of the world are expanding and you don't know where reality ends and your imagination might begin. Yes, yes. And I do think that one interesting thing for me about motherhood was that it um, changed my thinking to some degree about imagination. I feel like we connect imagination with children, with childhood, with playfulness. But I realized that there's also a real evolutionary purpose to imagination, of course, because when I had children, my imagination became quite overactive. And you need to imagine bad things happening to your children in order to prevent them. I mean, I I assume I I would like to actually talk to an expert in evolution about this, but I assume that part of the purpose of imagination is to keep your offspring safe. And, and so in that her imagination is certainly dipping over the edge and blurring the lines of reality. And she's about to enter an experience where all the lines of reality are getting blurred. It was interesting too, because one of the things I wrote down that, was curious to me as, you know, part of, I mean, some of this is maybe new age thinking, but some of it is just, you know, how how do we go about and manifest the things we want in our lives? And I was thinking about this idea of sometimes when you think about something, you, it's a fear you have, but sometimes when I think about something that's a fear, I'm also like, oh my God, am I manifesting this? Am I with my own thoughts putting this reality into some sort of action in the universe? And I'm wondering if you thought about that either in your book or as a mother. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly this the sort of train of thought that you're thinking of. I mean, I've also had the opposite thing that if you think something, how could it ever happen? Because you've already thought it so specifically, how could... how could reality bend itself to something that you've imagined? So I have this almost protective thing of thinking of a worst case scenario and thinking, well, if you've imagined it, aren't you protected from it? (laughs) That's, I don't know, like a a thought is a kind of protective talisman. A dark thought is a protective talisman. But I don't know. I mean, I I think to some degree, certainly this is front and center when you become a parent, but it's also true throughout your life that, um, there are a lot of things we want to control that we can't control. That's hard to come to terms with as a human. You want to have control over everything all the time, and you don't. And And part of the need is really about that fact of coming to terms with the fact that you can't control as much as you would like to. One of the things Molly talks about sometimes is 
this idea of being split in two. I think you have a scene where she's thinking about, like, I could be with my kids or I could go out for a walk in the evening right now. Mm -hmm. And that is also paralleled with the fact that she's a paleobotanist and she's looking at this seam in the earth. And she's also looking at alternative realities. You mentioned a few times, like, maybe there's a reality out there where Hitler was just an artist Mm -hmm. instead of becoming what he became. And I'm wondering if you could talk about not just this idea, but also how this idea grounded her in her her profession. Yes, I, I knew very early on that I wanted Molly to have a profession that would involve excavating the earth. And, and when you are a paleobotanist or even an archaeologist, part of what you're doing, I think, is contemplating other possible histories or other possible versions of reality. We have our set of assumptions about what the world has been in the past, but discoveries are made that cause us to question that. And so just as Molly on the home front is is confronting a lot of questions about what her reality and what her identity is, that is very baked in also to her professional realm of inquiry. And to speak a little bit more about the paleobotany aspect of the book, though I knew early on that I wanted her to have a profession that involved excavation, I didn't know, I thought maybe she would be an archaeologist, but but that wasn't quite working. And so um, my in-laws know a woman whose daughter is a paleobotanist, and I didn't know a lot about paleobotany, which is the study of plant fossils, unlike in contrast to animal fossils. So I got on the phone with this paleobotanist, not sure if this would be fruitful, this conversation, but just curious to find out more about it. And after two hours and uh, my type frenetically typing nine pages of notes, I had, she said something to me that was a critical aspect that enabled the plot to fall into place. And what she told me is that the fossil record is incomplete and it always will be. And paleobotanists, with some frequency, find fossils that they can't match up with any current flora, and they can't match up to anything in the fossil record. So this idea that paleobotanists often really do confront the same mysteries that Molly is confronting, where you find a fossil and you don't really know, it could indicate, you find a fossil and it could indicate a whole different version of things. So that's very grounded in what could actually happen to a paleobotanist. So that was really important to me in a book that has a speculative or almost science fiction element, that everything else about it was very grounded in reality. And this fact that the mysteries at Molly's workplace are actual real world mysteries or are similar to real world mysteries that paleobotanists face was really important to me. As you talk about the speculative fiction aspect of this, the the intruder that Molly faces is very ungrounding for her. In, In reality, she's really facing herself and her own fears that this intruder brings out in her what kind of mother she is, could she lose her kid from a moment of inattention, the freedom when she has these moments without her kids. And because of who the intruder was is what kind of brings us into the realm of speculation and Mm -hmm. and speculative fiction. And I read somewhere that you said, you know, you like to explore in your books human experiences that you can't explore through realism Can you talk a little bit about this need for the speculative aspect? 
Yes, that's true, both with the speculative aspect of the book and with the thriller aspect of the book. It's really, I wouldn't call it a thriller. I wouldn't call it science fiction, but it's borrowing elements from both of those. The reason for that is what I was trying to express, the sort of intensity and ferocity and terror and ecstasy of maternal love, I, I'm not, I, I can't do it just by describing reality. I have to move it into a metaphorical realm rather than just articulating Sometimes I feel a sense of dread, almost like there's an intruder in my home. I want to go the next step and say, I feel a sense of dread and there is an intruder in my home. So it's not just a feeling, but it actually becomes a manifest physical reality. So that is that accounts for the thriller elements of it that I wanted there to really be that momentum at the beginning of, wow, there's an intruder in the house. I, this is not, there's actually literally a physical intruder to reckon with. And then in terms of the speculative aspects, okay, I needed to have the perfect nemesis arrive out of the cosmic void to confront Molly. Because without being able to have that thriller-like momentum, without being able to have that sort of impossible nemesis, I just couldn't ask these questions in as deep and embodied a way as I want to. I believe that other writers could do that using realism, but for me, that's just not how my mind works. I need to take it to a more embodied, concrete place in order to really explore the questions that I'm grappling with. I feel like this is a book about empathy, and I don't know if that comes through to all readers, but really, the the thing that you think is the greatest threat at the beginning of the book, as you go deeper into the book, that threat really changes form. And I think that part of what I'm asking us to do is to think about the assumptions we bring to a situation and how those assumptions might change if we had the full story about someone. In the the case of this book, did you have realizations writing you know, from this real place, putting this fictional character into this, adding the speculative aspect, maybe that you discovered along the way, either truths about motherhood or truths about writing or truths about the earth. One part of Molly's journey, in addition to being a journey of empathy or, or trying to find the bounds of her own empathy, she also becomes very grateful for a life that she had begun to take for granted. And so in that sense, I find it to be a very positive book for Molly, even though there's so much darkness in it. But she realizes that that she needs to cherish these moments that she had that she had come to take for granted. And so though it seems a little odd to spend time away from one's children writing a dark book about anxiety about your children, I would return to my family after working on the book with a renewed sense of gratitude just for the, for, for my daily life. You know, you can take your daily life for granted until it's under threat. And then suddenly it, it is precious, more precious than you, you had ever realized. So I think that was something that I thought a lot about while I was working on it. And another thing that the process taught me was that when I was revising the book, like going from the first draft to the second draft, there were certain flaws in the book that 
usually when I'm revising a book, it might be that I had to revise for craft reasons or character reasons. But in this case, I had to revise for emotional reasons. There were certain emotional places in the book that were so hard for me to go to that I had avoided them in the first draft. And so in progressive drafts, I had to go on an emotional journey myself and really imagine what it would feel like to be in this situation. And it's not pleasant to imagine that, but I had to do that. And, and that was somehow connected to the process of grieving for my own sister. Have you ever read an essay by Charles Baxter called Creating a Scene? It's in a book that he wrote called The Art of Subtext. No, actually. Gray Wolf has a series of books about craft, and he wrote mm-hmm. one. Basically, what he talks about that a lot of fiction sometimes is missing is that we as humans, like we want to be polite. You know, we're polite in our daily lives and that we end up being polite on the page and we hold ourselves back from characters literally making a scene in a situation. And that's Mm. kind of what you're talking about a little bit is that, you know, it's not necessarily politeness you're talking about, but it's like the places that we don't want to go in our real lives. Sometimes we do that to our characters, but that's exactly what fiction needs is to go to those places. This is kind of a funny example of that. But at one point, she, Molly starts to become a not very good employee and not go to work. And I was like, oh, no, she's not going to work. This is, you know, she needs to go to work. And then I was like, no, of course she wouldn't go to work right now. Like, she can't go to work. That would be very polite of her to go to work. But that's not what's happening here. So I, that's just a silly, trite example. But in On Writing, it, the book by Stephen King, he says something like, when you become a writer, you forsake polite company. That's what being a writer is. And I I teach this section to my students at Brooklyn College, and they always love that part that you you have to forsake polite company when you become a writer. And it's an interesting echo of what you just said, that there is something. You have to say things that we aren't really supposed to say. And I definitely think that with motherhood, there is a certain pressure on mothers to just be always nurturing, always glowing and happy. And, and there is a true ecstasy to motherhood. I have experienced that. And I love that. But there is a really dark side to it, too. The more you love someone, the more you fear for bad things happening to them. And, and maybe it is a little impolite to say that about motherhood. But it was something that I felt very compelled to say. And I think that if you acknowledge all the different sides of an experience, the experience overall is richer. To only acknowledge one side of it and to deny other aspects is um, will end up impoverishing the experience overall. Can you talk about writing the kids? Uh, Ben didn't have that much because he was uh, younger and didn't have words. But Viv is four and she's vivacious and um, perceptive and also just a four-year-old. And uh, the dialogue was so enchanting. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about that and if if some of that was just like maybe verbatim from your kids. Mm -hmm. Some of it is just lines that my my daughter said when she was that age. Certainly there is some of that. Um, But also I was thinking a lot about the way children are evoked in fiction. And I often find it dissatisfying because I think they can come off as a little cute. Um, And even when you change, when you try to evoke children's dialogue by having a ton of exclamation marks or by changing the R's to W's so they sound really cute, 
it's cloying, I think. And, and one thing that surprised me when I had children of that age is they are so much like people. I mean, they are people, but just, I, I really wanted Viv's full personhood to come through that you can see in her a perspective that is not an adult perspective, but that is really, that she fully inhabits this selfhood. I just, I think I was surprised at, at what a young age people manifest themselves. And I really wanted to capture Viv as a real presence, not just as a child presence, but as a real presence on the page. Um, and so I went through, I was very concerned about her seeming precious or precocious. And I went through the dialogue and I, I removed exclamation marks. I removed certain adorable moments because I felt like I wanted her to have a certain dignity um, in the book. And, and Ben is pre-verbal, so it's different with him. But even with him, I wanted him to have little ways of manifesting his selfhood and not just being a baby, being lugged around. Yeah, and I think one thing that your book um, that that you really see through Molly is not just you know the mother telling the kids everything, but what she learns from her kids, the way they make her think. There was a line in there that you know I could have closed the book and thought about for a long time. Basically, she's looking at her two children and seeing maybe a few ways that Ben might be following Viv's lead, and you wrote. Had Viv left messages scribbled in secret sibling graffiti on the walls of the uterus? And it just made me think so much about how siblings share this space. But, you know, unless you're twins, you don't like share it at the same time. Um, and just taking it down the rabbit hole of, of that thought of, of what that means for each child. And the real reason for that is that um, my children are two and a half years apart and they would at the same age, like when my son reached the same age that my daughter had been, he would have certain similar things that he was scared of. And it was so mystified, just random things like yellow kitchen gloves. In that scene, it's actually yellow kitchen gloves. And both of my children went through a phase where they were scared of yellow kitchen gloves. And it just seemed like the most random, hilarious, bizarre thing. And I mean, you do share the womb with your siblings. It's fascinating to think if it's a biological um, sibling, you've actually begun your life in the same tiny little home. And and that is that does seem like something very profound to share with another person, although we don't really talk or think about it that much. But, but it's amusing also to think of a little fetus writing graffiti for their sibling in there. Can we talk a little bit about the the seam the the Phillips sixty six site it was named after um, the gas station that used to be there um, Molly's boss bought the property so they could you know have unending amounts of time there without any limitations to excavate and in addition to some of the samples they found um, they also found some strange artifacts they found a little uh, monkey figurine with the long tail. They found Coke bottles and they found a Bible that had some differences about it. And they didn't know if it was placed there or if it was found there. So for a long time at this site, they have been finding plant fossils that defied their understanding. 
the aforementioned plant fossils that couldn't be matched with anything in the current flora or in the fossil record. So there have already been mysteries at this site. Um, but then in recent times, and actually since having children, Molly has begun to pick up different pieces of litter that before um, being a mother and before being in her kind of groggy, sleep-deprived state, she wouldn't have given a second thought to. She would have just thrown them away. But n now she's at a point where she actually engages with them a bit, and she notices, for instance, that there's a Coca-Cola bottle where the font tips backward. And the climax of these strange artifacts that many people assume are hoaxes or jokes of some kind, the climactic find is a Bible that has a significant one significant difference from the Bible as we know it. And at this point, the possibility that the pit is some kind of portal begins to arise in Molly's mind, that there's something going on here that really is not just a hoax and not just the normal mysteries of paleobotany. So it's at that time and paired with what's happening on the home front, these two mysteries in her life collide. And she has to reckon with the possibility of, of realities that she would have never before conceived of. They find this Bible, and that gets out all kinds of people coming to the pit to visit and take, do tours, which they never offered before. And also, once you find an, a religious artifact, as we've seen in real life, it changes. You know, you get everyone from the devout people to the the questioning people, and there's there's kind of like an, an occult energy around that. And to top that off, this Bible was a regular Bible, except in the Bible, God was a she. And mm -hmm. that really obviously upset really devout people. It caused a stir around that and possibly referred to some danger that maybe they were facing there. I, I've always imagined, and I guess this is tied into the butterfly effect, you know, what how would things be different if one thing were different? How could one significant change in history ripple down and change everything else? And one thing that seems to me that would have done that is if a different pronoun were chosen for God, if the pronoun she had been used for God in the Bible, I mean, that would have changed so many things. And the need doesn't really imagine or evoke what that reality would be. We don't step into the world that that Bible comes from. But it does, I think, and this is, if you think of the ending of the book as a window into other possibilities, that question of what would our world be like if the pronoun for God were she in the Bible, I, I think that's a really interesting question that the book raises and presents, but doesn't really delve into. I leave that imagining to the reader. I did speak to a biblical scholar in the writing process, and she had some very interesting things to say about the idea that in the Hebrew Bible, a choice was made to translate that pronoun as he. And there's some vagueness to pronouns in Hebrew, as she explained to me. I hope I'm rephrasing her correctly. The pronoun is always a placeholder because God would be too large to be contained within a pronoun anyway. And so a choice can be made to give a pronoun to God, but God really ought to be beyond pronoun. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, I'm going to read. It's a brief passage. It's from 
the book Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin, who's an Argentine writer. And this book, I can't recommend it highly enough to everyone, but I, I really admire it for having very magnetic pacing throughout and also asking really deep questions about existence and motherhood. So this book has been a major inspiration to me. So in the scene I'm about to read, one woman, Carla, has just told another woman, Amanda, about something very frightening that happened to uh, Carla's son. And Amanda is imagining bad things happening to her own daughter. I'm wondering whether what happened to Carla could happen to me. I always imagine the worst case scenario. Right now, for instance, I'm calculating how long it would take me to jump out of the car and reach Nina if she suddenly ran and leapt into the pool. I call it the rescue distance. That's what I've named the variable distance separating me from my daughter. And I spend half the day calculating it, though I always risk more than I should. Is there anything else you want to say? I feel like fever dream captures a certain ominousness that is both personal and global, unlike any book I've ever read. So I think everyone should read it. Can you read a passage from something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft. This is chapter 17 of The Need. This is Molly's first real sighting of the intruder. And the intruder has appeared holding a book that that her daughter Viv has been missing. The deer held the Y book out to Viv like an offering. Viv stopped mid-step, hesitating, as though jerked backward by a magical thread, the thread of Molly's love, the umbilical cord tugging the child toward the mother, holding her back at the edge of the cliff. She glanced at Molly, her eyes wide and glistening, and Molly thought, yes, that's right, don't go, stay close. But just as she thought it, just as she breathed out with thankfulness for the fact that Viv, very nearly four, had the sense not to run toward a masked stranger, the thread snapped, and Viv sprinted forward to snatch the book out of the deer's hands. Viv settled cross-legged on the floor and began flipping through it. There was an intruder in the living room. They could be killed at any second, yet her children did not appear frightened. This both, both distressed and reassured her. Was it true or false that children are like animals that can sense in advance when a tornado is coming? Ben thrashed in her arms, wanting down. Her muscles were fatigued, but she forced herself to contain him. He grunted in frustration, straining toward the deer. She felt the dizziness rising in her. She tried to catalog everything she could about the deer, tried to imagine herself filing a police report detailing all of it for David, but there was so little to note the black clothing, the golden mask, his disarming stillness as he stood in the coffee table, the apparent confidence with which he inhabited her space. The level of her vulnerability astounded her, destabilized her. David was miles away, thousands of miles away, and her phone might as well have been miles away and her bag slumped by the front door. Fetching it would require her to turn around to leave Viv at the feet of the intruder. She had only her body, her words, with which to save her children. Do you want to say anything about why you chose that? So this scene, I had to add a lot of sentences to, because when I first wrote it, it's it's a moment of such high tension. It's really when all of this um, 
dread that has been rising in the early pages of the book finally comes to a head. And I really brushed over this scene. I had Viv just run over and grab the book. And my editor, Mary Sugrucci of Simon & Schuster, said, wait, you're avoiding this moment and you need to linger in this moment. This is a moment of tremendous import, import and tension. And I wanted to brush over it. That's what I was saying to you earlier, that sometimes I had to do emotional work in order to revise the book, not just craft work. The emotional work of, okay, dwell in this moment. Dwell at the moment where Molly really has to confront the abyss. And so I added a lot of the lines where Viv hesitates for a moment. And it seems like she's not going to run toward the intruder, but then she does, after all, run toward the intruder. So we have a moment where we're hovering in that question of what is this unreliable person, a four-year-old, going to do in this moment? So I, I usually, I tend towards cutting in revision. Usually I'm condensing and crystallizing, but this was one case where I needed to add text to make the moment realize itself more fully. Where do you write? I write, well, I've become a lot less precious about that since becoming a parent, Um, but I either write in my desk, which is in a corner of my bedroom, or I have a shared office at Brooklyn College where I write, um, where I teach as well, and sometimes in a cafe if, if there are no other options. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I hang out with my kids. You have to be so in the moment in a very wonderful way, so you can't really fret about your writing or how it's going when you're with them um, or with my husband or I also um, physical activity is really helpful. So running or doing yoga. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show it to two people. My husband, Adam, who is a cartoonist and artist. So he also um, he's a wonderful person to speak to about it because he has his own artistic questions that he's always thinking about. And then also my younger sister, Alice. How have you dealt with rejection? So I have for many, many, many years kept an Excel spreadsheet where I log every place that I submit my work and what date I submitted it on. And then when I get the result, which especially early on was almost always rejection, I would just write rejected in huge bold letters in the Excel spreadsheet and the date I got rejected and then I would move on. So there was something helpful about when I got a rejection, it was time to to process it bureaucratically. So I just, okay, right, type in rejected in big letters and move on. There was something about that act of just recording it that felt like closing the loop and I would try to not fret about the emotional aspects of it. And and really that document, that Excel spreadsheet where I have a collection of all my rejections, I take a lot of pride in that because I've sent my work out a lot and it's been rejected a lot, but I've sent it out a lot too, so. And what is your favorite word? I... I love so many words, but one word that's on my mind right now, I'm reading Ted Chiang's brilliant collection, Exhalation, and it has a great cover with the word exhalation in these kind of disintegrating letters. So I was thinking the other day about the word exhalation and the way that the word itself makes you exhale. So exhalation is my current favorite word of the day. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing, My guest was Helen Phillips, author of The Need. You can follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. And please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive 
at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and your donations keep the dialogue going. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. As we say in public radio, isn't this worth the price of a coffee? And please rate the show wherever you download your podcasts and invite your friends to listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.